0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, let me make sure I have this on. I do. Okay. Good morning, everyone. I'm so glad that y'all are here today. I want to welcome those folks at Pike Road who are watching us via video. We're so glad that you are here as well. And today, we're going to continue on in our series uh, entitled "Jesus, Who Is He." We are trying to answer that question to the best of our ability, and we've got a few more weeks left. We're using the Gospel of Luke as our primary text for trying to understand who Jesus was. Luke was, did a wonderful job of recording the life and times of Jesus Christ, and today I want to talk with you about an important dimension of Jesus' identity, and that was his title as the Messiah. Inside your bulletin today, you'll find an outline and t- with that at the top, that title at the top, that Jesus is the Messiah. And if somebody ever asked you, well, who is Jesus? You could answer, well, Jesus is the Messiah. And then they go, well, what does that mean? you go, I don't know. <laughs> and then you go, I hope you wouldn't say that after you uh, hear this message today. I hope you'd be able to answer confidently, well, here's what it means to be a Messiah. Here's what it meant to the people of Jesus' day, and here's what it means to me. And so that's our goal this morning is to unpack all that and help us understand Jesus a little better by understanding the title that was given to him Uh, by uh, the people of his day, by the prophets who came before him, and by God himself. Let me have a word of prayer for us, and we'll jump right in. Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I want to thank you that we can study your word. I want to thank you for Luke, who faithfully recorded the events, the miracles, and the teachings of Jesus' life. And God, today I pray that we'd understand Jesus a little better because of our time together. So Lord, I pray that you'll speak and move me out of the way and teach us what it means when we say that Jesus is the Messiah. In the name of this, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you take that outline out of your bulletin, if you need a pen to fill in the blanks as we go along or take some notes in the margins, just raise your hand. One of our ushers will be glad to bring one to you. Uh, The first point of your outline is simply this. In Jesus' day, many people were looking for the Messiah to come. Now, as I said a second ago, we're going to be unpacking what that term means, but there were many people who were looking uh, for the Messiah to come. If you have a a hard copy of the Bible. I realize now many people are just reading it through electronic, reading in electronic form. But what's interesting is, is the copy that I have up here uh, today, when you split it right down the middle, this is the Old Testament and here's the New Testament. Well, if you don't have a commentary section or a study Bible with you, what you don't realize is, is about 400 years that pass between the first half and the second half of this book between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we talked about what those terms meant last week. And you can go online and uh, pick that up if you wish, about the old covenants. But it had been about 400 years since anybody had heard from a prophet, somebody who spoke at God's leading. God would place a word in their heart or a dream in their minds or a vision. And he would be the prophet or the prophetess, the man or the woman who would received this vision from God, would have a burning in their bones to go and speak this truth. And so they would approach the kings or the leaders or the people and say, here's a word from the Lord for you. That hadn't happened for more than 400 years when the New Testament starts. And Luke records for us that many people were looking for the Messiah to come. In fact, this is from Luke 3, and it talks about John the Baptist's ministry. And here's what Luke recorded. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they were eager to know whether John the Baptist might be the Messiah. And let me just remind you, John the Baptist was somebody who lived out in the desert. He wore camel hair clothes, and he ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, this was a guy who came in looking really wild-eyed and strange, but he spoke with authority, with a message from God. And people hadn't heard anybody talk like this for over 400 years. And so people went out to meet him, and he'd tell them, Repent, the kingdom of God's coming soon. Turn from your sins. Quit being selfish. Be content with the wages you have. Forgive people when they do you wrong. And people would be, just be cut to the quick, and they'd come to him, and he would baptize them in the Jordan River right there to symbolize that they were being washed. Their sins were forgiven, and they were washed clean. And they went out to see him by the hundreds and by the thousands. And they didn't know what to make of this. It had been so long, and they'd been waiting for a, a deliverer to come under the heading of Messiah, and so some people thought he might be the Messiah. But John the Baptist answered their questions by saying, look, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so people asked John, are you the Messiah, the deliverer who will rescue our people? And John said, no, he's far greater than I am. He was just a messenger to run ahead of him. Now, I want to unpack a little bit more what Messiah means, so you can understand it more fully. Messiah, the term Messiah, is exactly the same term. That's in Old Testament Hebrew. In the New Testament, they used a language of Greek. Uh, I mean, a version of Greek, an old, an antique or an antiquated version of of Greek. It's no longer spoken anymore. It was called Koine Greek, and in that language, the word Messiah was translated Christ. And so, Messiah and Christ mean exactly the same thing. And so some of the passages that I read this morning, if you read it in a different translation, I'm reading it in a New Living Translation where it uses Messiah. They'll use the word Christ. That's the same. It doesn't matter. It all means the same thing. And it means anointed one. Messiah is from a Hebrew word uh, that meant to smear or to anoint. And where it was most profoundly seen is when David became king. Saul was the first king of Israel and God had uh, it give, had given the people what they wanted they wanted, a king, they wanted a king who was tall And handsome and strong And looked like a great military leader And so he gave him Saul And Saul was a washout He wouldn't obey God But after, when Saul had failed and failed and failed again God sent one of his prophets, Samuel To the home of a man named Jesse And Jesse had seven sons And he said, "The son, have the sons parade in front of you And the one I choose I want you to anoint him to be the next king and it was the last one. It was the youngest of Jesse's sons, David. And as you'll read here, if you, you'll see this in your outline from First Samuel 16. Here's where the term anointed one came to be understood. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel the prophet took the flask of olive oil that he had brought and he anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on, he took a flask of oil and put it over David's head. And the olive oil ran all over him, ran down all over him, dripping off of him. It symbolized on the outside what was happening on the inside that God's Holy Spirit would now be all over him, which is what the text says. Holy Spirit just dripping off of him. That's why in the next chapter, in 1 Samuel 17, when Saul, who's supposed to be the great military leader that the people wanted, is cowering in his tent from a giant that is brought out by the Philistines to be their champion and challenging them, This little shepherd boy, David, who happened to be visiting his brothers, runs out to meet him with a sling and a stone. He runs right at the giant, slings the stone, and it hits him right in the forehead. And the giant falls down. David grabs his sword and cuts off his head. He picks up his head and holds it up, and the whole army charges. And people said, what kind of young man is this? This guy is a leader. This guy, in fact, when he was running at the giant, he said, The giant was taunting him, saying, come here, boy, I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the air. And David said, oh, no, you come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord high God, the God of Israel, and you have insulted him, and he will deliver you to me. And people said, wow, this is a leader. This guy is courageous. This guy is a champion. He's a conqueror, and God's spirit is just dripping off of him. And that's the kind of King David was, the greatest king they'd ever had. And they wanted another leader like that. Because during the time when Jesus came, they were under Roman occupation. And the leaders they had were much more concerned about politics and keeping their place than they were about leading the people in righteousness or leading the people in victory. And they wanted somebody like David to come again. Now, before David died, he wanted to build God a temple in Jerusalem. He said, Lord, I want to build a house for you. And David uh, received a message from God via another prophet named Nathan. And here's what the Lord said to him. Nathan told David, the Lord declares to you, David, that he'll make a house for you. Not a physical house, but a, a house, a lineage, a dynasty of kings your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time and your throne will be secure forever. And so the people, when David was getting old and it was soon that he was going to die, they were going, what's going to happen? Where will we ever find someone like you? And God had told David, don't you worry about that, David. I'm going to make sure you have successors following you. Well, Solomon had been very wise, but at the end of his reign, he became corrupt. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was a fool and split the kingdom in half. The two split kingdoms The northern half was taken away in about 720 B.C. by the Assyrians, conquered by them, and the people were scattered. The lower kingdom, about 150 years later, they were scattered by the Babylonians, taken away, and everybody was wondering, whatever happened to that promise? But in the midst of all this, there were a couple of prophets who came and said, don't give up, because God's going to send someone special, an anointed one, just like David, and he will rescue the people forever. And so that word for anointing or smearing became the title of this person, the expected one, the anointed one, the one with the Holy Spirit dripping all over him, the Messiah. And that's why the next note for you is this, that Jesus is that Messiah. When Jesus appeared in the world, right before he was born, an angel appeared to Mary and told her, that she was going to conceive, even though she was a virgin, that God himself was going to place a child in her womb. The Holy Spirit would place uh, the baby Jesus there. And the angel told Mary, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And now you know what that means. He's going to be the one that fulfills the prophecy given to David. And he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. People have been waiting for this mighty conqueror, this descendant of David, and Jesus came into the world, and Luke is convinced, and the disciples were convinced as you go through this, as you see this this morning, that Jesus is that person. And hopefully by the end of our discussion this morning, you'll be convinced of that too. Because it matters, and you'll see why. Now, most people, now to help you understand a little bit of what was going on also in this dynamic, why people were questioning, John, are you the Messiah? Who is this? Well, most people expected the Messiah to come as a mighty conqueror to rescue them from oppression. I mean, David had come and killed Goliath. David had been a great military man and conquered the Philistines, who were their arch enemy, beat them back over and over again whenever they came to invade. It was much better than Saul. Established borders that is. Son Solomon could expand. And they thought, well, maybe he'll be a mighty conqueror like that. And that's why when Jesus rode into town on a donkey uh, on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before he was crucified, huge crowds greeted him in Jerusalem. Listen to what Luke recorded for us. So they brought the colt, Jesus' disciples brought a colt, a donkey's colt, to Jesus, and they threw their garments over it for him to ride on. And as Jesus rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. And the people were going, this must be the Messiah. By this time in Jesus' ministry, they had heard stories and many had seen him raise people from the dead. Blind people could see and lame people could walk. People who had never been able to speak or hear could now do all those things. Jesus had multiplied fish and bread, and some had even seen him walk on water. Who could be greater than this guy? And so when he came riding into donkey, they said, oh, this must be the guy. In fact, it even gets better because one of the prophets who had written about the Messiah 500 years earlier was Zechariah. And here's what he wrote. I just want you to listen to this. This is from Zechariah 9, 9, and 10. Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to all the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. And there were many people, when they saw Jesus walk in, who knew the Old Testament. They said, That's exactly what Zechariah said 500 years ago. He must be the guy. He must be the Messiah. He must be the great conqueror that we're looking for. And that's what they had expected, a mighty conqueror to come. Now, it wasn't just the people who'd been studying the Old Testament. It was even people who were just trying to stay in power. If you remember, shortly after Jesus was born, some wise men showed up from Um, way out in Arabia and they had come because they had seen a star in the east and they had followed it and when they came to Jerusalem all Jerusalem was upset this is from Matthew's gospel now Jesus was born in Judea during the reign of King Herod and about that time some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking where is the newborn king of the Jews we saw his stars that arose and we've come to worship him now, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. So he called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah, this anointed one, supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said. And he, the reason they got that is from Micah 5 too. Let me read that to you. But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village in Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you whose origins are from the distant past. So even... Herod, who is by no means a Bible scholar and by no means a follower of God, believed that there would be a mighty conqueror who would come, a Messiah, an anointed one, a great military conqueror. And so here's what Herod did. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. People had been waiting for the Messiah to come and when Jesus showed up, Miracles and strange things started happening. When John the Baptist began his ministry, people said, hey, something's going on now. Something we haven't seen in 400 years. Nobody's heard anything like this. And so they were expecting a great military leader. But the same crowd that cheered, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us. When Jesus came into town on a donkey, fulfilling that prophecy were the same people who turned on him on Good Friday. And the reason they did is because Jesus didn't seem to fit all the right categories. I mean, he did miracles, so the Holy Spirit of God was definitely upon him. But if he's going to be a military conqueror, he wasn't going about it the right way. He was telling people to forgive the Romans. And if they ask you to carry a pack one mile, go ahead and carry it two. Jesus, I mean, what kind of talk is that? He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, and he was hanging around poor people, and he forgave prostitutes and tax collectors. And he was supposed to be organizing a government and organizing a military and organizing a big campaign to kick the Romans out. But he kept talking about his father's kingdom and not the kingdom of Israel. And even threw in these strange statements about how he was going to come to suffer and die. He was the Messiah, a mighty conqueror, like David. But Jesus came instead, and this is point two on your outline, that he came as a suffering servant to rescue all of us from sin and death. He didn't come as a mighty conqueror. He came as a suffering servant. And in Luke 9, Luke records one of the conversations between Jesus and his disciples. And the Son of Man, that's the title Jesus referred to himself as, the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He'll be rejected by the elders, by the leading priests, by the teachers of religious law. He'll be killed, but on the third day he'll be raised from the dead. And they didn't understand what he was talking about at all. I mean, it's very likely this whole disappointment with Jesus coming as a suffering servant might have been very much why Judas betrayed him. Judas was the treasurer of, the, of Jesus' disciples and his money. And he was thinking, man, if I'm the treasurer and this guy becomes the Messiah, I'm going to be, you know, secretary of the treasury. And He was angling for a big position, but Jesus didn't seem to be with it. And eventually he might have said, hey, this guy isn't the Messiah at all, and was willing to betray him. Jesus told Pilate, before he was crucified, Pilate asked him, so are you the king of the Jews? And here was Jesus' answer. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Another time when he was speaking to one of the religious leaders, Nicodemus, Jesus said God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He didn't come in to take names and and punish everybody. He came to save the world, the whole world. And for him to do that, it would be necessary for him to suffer and die. Now, biblical scholars had wondered about another person named in Scripture, and they didn't know how the Messiah was going to fit with this person that was listed in Isaiah uh, chapter 53. And there's a paragraph from that passage right now. You could read the whole chapter, and it'll just be amazing to you. They didn't know how it fit together, because this described a suffering servant as well, and Jesus fulfilled this prophecy too. This was written 700 years before Jesus was born. The prophet Isaiah said there would be a man who would appear, who would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep of have strayed away, we have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And when people had been trying to understand the prophecies about future leaders to come, they understood a Messiah who would ride in humble on a donkey's colt, would come in and set things right in Jerusalem. They were looking forward to a leader who would be born in Bethlehem, which was David's hometown, by the way, who would come and be a mighty leader whose origins are from the distant past. But this business about being a suffering servant I and mean, who's this guy and people didn't know it had never occurred to them that they would be one and the same person and that's why so many people were confused about Jesus they couldn't imagine a mighty king who had come to suffer and die everybody's heard of kings who sent their troops into battle to die to save the king nobody'd ever heard of a king who went into battle to die to save his troops Lots of people had heard about kings who taxed the people in order that he could be rich. Nobody had ever heard of a king who left the riches of heaven to become poor and become one of his people. I mean, Jesus' logic is all upside down. And that's why it takes great faith to trust him. Because the math doesn't work in our world. We conquer, we climb the hill, and we get to be king of the hill. We shove everybody else off. And Jesus says, Well, it's not that way in my Father's kingdom. If you want to follow me, you've got to put yourself last and serve others. If somebody strikes you on one cheek, well, then turn the other one. And like I said, people just didn't know what to make of him. There's an important note here on this, and that is that Jesus' agenda is was bigger and better than everyone else's agenda. The people of Israel when they came to see John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? When Herod killed all little babies thinking there might be a, a mighty conqueror born there. When the people saw Jesus riding in on a donkey and they thought, here our military champion has come. They were all looking for a military conqueror, a king of Israel who would restore Israel to its former glory. As it was during the days of David and Solomon. And Jesus had much bigger and better plans. And that's why when the angel appeared to the shepherds at Jesus' birth, the angel didn't talk about a savior for just Israel, but a savior for the whole world. I mean, you've probably heard this passage at Christmas time. Now hear it in terms of the Messiah or the Christ. Do not be afraid, the angel told the shepherds, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, great joy, which shall be to all people, if you'd circle all people, not just Israel. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, if you circle Christ, or Messiah. It meant the same thing to them. Who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. On earth peace. Not just in Israel. And Jesus had an agenda that was so much bigger than the people of Israel. They just wanted somebody who'd get rid of the Romans and establish their country back in peace like David did. But David had prophesied about somebody much greater. They wanted somebody who would come and teach like John the Baptist did. And John the Baptist said, no, there's somebody coming who's much greater. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. There's a bigger picture here. And there's a life application in all this for you and me. Jesus' agenda for me is bigger than my agenda. Jesus' agenda for my life is bigger than my agenda for my life. I mean, we could look at those people and go, wow, all you're concerned about is your country when the Lord of The universe, the one who made the whole earth, who made everyone on it, made every living thing in it, comes down, you want him just to be satisfied with being the king of Israel? Well, yeah, that's all they could imagine. And Jesus came for so much more. He didn't come just to be king of Israel. He came to be king of kings and lord of lords and establish righteousness, the kingdom of God on earth, not just the kingdom of Israel. And that's why Jesus told the people who were following after him this. He said, look, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, you must take up your cross daily, and you must follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? What do you gain? And the reason I put that passage there is this. Some of us can be just like the people in Jesus' day. They were expecting somebody just to take care of them. They didn't care about the rest of the world. And we can be just as narrowly focused. We're focused on one bad habit or one fault in our character. We might eat too much or drink too much or cuss too much or lose our temper or who knows what all. And we say, God, I just want you to help me fix this part of my life. And Jesus comes to us and he says, no, I'm your Lord. I want you to come to me. We'll fix that all right, but I want to change you into a brand new person. See, Jesus doesn't want to settle for just one small part of my life. He wants my whole life. He wants your whole life. And that's why when you come to Jesus, Jesus said, hey, now count the cost, because as C.S. Lewis pointed out in Mere Christianity, Jesus is like a dentist. I mean, you go to the dentist because one tooth is hurting, you know what they do? They x-ray your whole mouth. They won't be satisfied in fixing that one tooth. They go and fix all the others, too. That's why a lot of us don't want to go. (laughs) Because we know once we get that guy in there, that rascal's going to go after all kinds of problems. And it's the same way with Jesus. We get Jesus in our life and say, hey God, I want you to fix this little part of my life because I'm kind of lazy and I want you to work with that. And he goes, well, yeah, that's fine, but we're going to change every part of your life. Well, now hold on. I'll never forget a few years ago, a woman came to me and her husband had a really bad temper and he drank too much. And she said, you got to talk to him. And I said, well... Where is he? And she said, well, he's sitting out in the car. He won't come in. wouldn't even come into my office. So I walked out to the car. And I said, "Will you meet with me. And he goes, look, I don't need this Christian stuff. And I go, well, let's just see. And so we went and got something to eat together. Talked him into meeting me at a restaurant. If I bought, okay, <laughs> he'd give me that much time. And we talked about some things. I said, brother, you need Jesus. You need your whole life changed. He had so much pain and bitterness stored up in him. It was little wonder he was angry all the time. It was little wonder he drank so much he was trying to medicate away all the pain and the grief. Do you know that guy surrendered his heart to Christ? Became a believer, became a brand new person. Started reading his Bible every day. Joined a small group. Just changed from the inside out. And then about six or seven months after this all happened, his wife came to see me again. And she said, you know, my husband's a completely different person. I said, that's right. And she said, "And now we don't go out dancing anymore. We don't go out drinking anymore. We don't do any of this stuff. I didn't tell you to fix everything. I just wanted you to stop a few things. I am serious. She was mad as fire that Jesus came in and changed the whole thing. And I said, well, it doesn't work this way. And by the way, if you've got a problem with that. Take it up with management. I'm just in sales. Okay, I don't... I don't do that. I mean, this is just a true story. I've also had kids that have come to Christ, and they were in my college ministry uh, when I was working at Fraser Methodist, and these Kids would get dedicated to Christ, and after they graduate with a degree, they'd want to go in the mission field. And I have parents come and call me and say, Now, look, I'm really glad you worked with my son or you worked with my daughter, but you've got to talk them out of this dang fool notion of going into ministry and missions. I mean, no offense, but they've got a college degree and I don't want them to end up doing something like ministry. Anybody can do ministry. They've got a degree and they need to make money and they need to get a job that's doing something. So you talk them out of it. I've had those phone calls. I've gotten those letters. Now, if you want to come to Jesus, I'm not going to guarantee that he's not going to give you a whole new perspective on life. If you come to Jesus and you say, Lord, I want to surrender my temper, well, he'll deal with that. but He's going to deal with a lot more. He didn't come to be king of part of your life. He came to be king of all of your life. He didn't come to be king of Israel. He came to be king of the whole world that he created. He didn't come to bring peace to one little patch of real estate. He came to bring peace to the whole planet. He is the prince of of peace and so before you and I judge the people of Israel with their narrow vision realize we can be just the same you can have part of me Lord but not all of me don't play that game that's a dangerous game it's short-sighted and wrong now real quickly I want to also point out as Luke pointed out, that people have always been divided over Jesus' identity. The Jewish religious leaders, by the way, thought that Jesus was a threat to their political power. They saw him just as a political threat. The leading priests and the Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do, they asked each other. This man, speaking of Jesus, certainly performs many miraculous signs. If We allow him to go on like this, and soon everyone will believe in him. And then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. And now you see what the leading religious leaders were really concerned about, their political clout and their temple. They weren't concerned about God's agenda at all. Well, Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't even realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. He didn't even realize he was giving a prophecy. That's exactly why Jesus came. One man should die so the whole nation wouldn't be destroyed. He was thinking in terms of the Romans. Jesus died because he was thinking in terms of hell. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. They saw him as a political threat. When Jesus was crucified, he was crucified in the middle with two criminals, one on either side. Jesus was numbered with the criminals. That was another prophecy that David gave in Psalm 22, by the way. But the two criminals who were crucified with Jesus were split on their opinions of him. They were split. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with Jesus. And when they came to the place called the skull, they nailed Jesus to a cross. And the criminals who were also crucified were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? This great conqueror with the Holy Spirit driven off of him. If you're this Messiah, this Christ, prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. I mean, if you're this great conqueror, a cross shouldn't be any problem for you. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today you'll be with me in paradise. Religious leaders saw Jesus just as a political threat. He wasn't the Messiah. He was just a troublemaker. The people crucified with him were split. But the disciples believed that Jesus is the Messiah. One day as Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Because by this time, John the Baptist had died. He was beheaded. And they believed that God had supernaturally put John's spirit in another body, I guess, or something Some say John the Baptist. Some say you're the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And others say you're one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. And then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah sent from God. The anointed one with the Holy Spirit dripping all over him. The conqueror of sin and death. Not just the Roman army. Not a king of Israel, but the king of kings. Not just a prince of one little patch of real estate, but the prince of peace for the whole earth. And that brings us to our last life application this morning. You and I must each answer the question, who is Jesus? I mean, that's this whole series. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Who do you say he is? He came into this very world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Yesterday morning, I was asked to uh, lead a funeral service, a memorial service, for a beautiful woman who passed away. And what was really intriguing about this funeral was that she had all of her affairs organized. She was a very detailed person. In the eventuality of her death, she had a statement of her funeral requests. She had memorial service order. She planned out the whole funeral service in order, and she had a confession of her faith, signed and notarized. Her name is Melinda Harris, and she said, I, Melinda Harris, do hereby announce and confess my faith that on this day, the 16th day of March of 2009, I do believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. I do hereby make it known to all my friends and family that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior and that I am a Christian. Therefore, at my death, my friends and my family will be assured that I am in heaven with my Lord and Savior. And in her funeral request, she said she'd requested a service to be conducted by John Schmidt. So the family called me. And she says in here, make sure John says this, Accept Christ today, for tomorrow may be too late. She was 47. She was 47, not 87. Now look, we can talk about the Messiah and you can have all, you got enough trivia now to win Bible trivia pursuit, okay, about what Messiah means. That is not the point of this lesson. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And I would ask you the same question this morning. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Holy Spirit just running all over him? Or is he just another guy? Because we need a suffering servant. We need someone to die in our place. But if you acknowledge that he is the Messiah, he doesn't want one little chunk of real estate in your life. He doesn't want one part of one bad habit or one bad sin. He wants all of you. And are you ready to come to him? I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and then we're going to have an old-fashioned altar call this morning. It may be that you've put off this decision for a long time, Well, you don't need to put it off one more day, because tomorrow may be too late. You make your decision today, and if God is calling you in this morning, you come. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there are certain times in this ministry when the only right response is an altar call. I cannot talk about the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the anointed one, without proclaiming, Lord, that he is still open for all to come to him. But Father, the call to follow you is a total call. We must surrender all. We must deny ourselves daily, pick up our cross, and give everything to you. What does it profit to gain the whole world and not be right with you? And so, Heavenly Father, this morning, I pray that if you have spoken to someone's heart and they have stalled this and put this off, and they've even been thinking about this for the last few weeks, I've got to get right with Jesus that they'd come forward this morning, today, and seal it. They could do what Melinda did and say, I hereby confess my faith and announce that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and he is the Son of the living God. I'm proud of Melinda, Lord, and I'm glad she's in your presence. And God, we open the doors wide open this morning for someone else to come. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah, we pray these things.